We are beginning a new sermon series this morning, and our scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28, and we are going to read through the end of the chapter, through verse 48. That's our text, and so if you want to turn there now, either in a Bible that you might have with you, or if you want to use one of the blue Bibles that are in the chair racks, then uh, Luke 19, verse 28, is on page 1117, if you want to use that one. What's happening here? is that Jesus is transitioning in the last week of his earthly life, a a week that is going to occupy our attention over the next three plus months and lead us as we go through the end of Luke's gospel all the way to Easter and to the end of the the gospel of Luke. And, And where we start is here, where Luke records for us how Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and the very first things that Luke records Jesus did when he got there. So let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read from Luke's gospel, uh, starting at chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So Jesus is making a a grand entry here, a grand opening, and I was trying to think of uh, things where we see that in the world around us, and it reminded me of an old story um, about Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia. It's the place where I saw my first Major League Baseball game, and Veterans Stadium opened in 1971, and when they did this, it was intended to be a big deal for the city. This was uh, you know, one of the modern, supposedly one of the modern new stadiums of the new era. It was a big deal for the city of Philadelphia, a big deal for the Phillies. And they knew that the place to get excitement going was on opening day, the first day of the season. Because if you're going to build momentum, you're going to generate 
buzz, then you have to make a big splash at the very beginning, and you have to make a grand entrance. And so the first year at the, at the vet on opening day, they dropped the, the, the game ball out of a helicopter, and it was caught by the, the backup catcher. The second year, though, they said, let's top it. Let's top the grand entrance and do it like this. They found a guy who used to jump off of cliffs with a kite on his back, a big giant sail. They called him Kite Man. And they booked him to slide down on skis a ramp that was erected on the upper deck in the outfield, and he was going to launch himself off of this ramp, fly over and down onto the field to deliver the game ball. Gimmicky stuff, right? But it got the people's attention, and that was the goal. Now, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, it's not a gimmick. It's not a ploy to, to sell tickets, but it was a big entrance. And it was carefully choreographed and carefully planned, and it was designed to communicate something about who Jesus is and about what was about to happen. There are actually a couple of different incidents in in what we read, so I want to look at it under four four headings this morning and look at the text that we just read as we kind of go through these different incidences. Sometimes people will split them up into their own sermons, but I think there's something to be gained by looking at them all together. The first thing we have is the entry of the king. That's Jesus' preparation to enter the city. We have the tears of the king. It's only three verses, but that's actually where we'll spend most of our time. And then we have the cleansing of the king, Jesus coming into the temple and driving out the, the merchants there. And then finally, in response to those three incidences, we have to consider our response to the king. Now, first section, the entry of the, the king. Here comes Jesus, and he's approaching Jerusalem, his final destination of his of his life here on earth. He had been there before on a few occasions, but this time would be, be different. And at no time of the year would Jerusalem have been more crowded than it was right now at the beginning of the Passover as the pilgrims flowed in from all the surrounding uh, areas to celebrate the largest feast on the Jewish calendar. Now, estimates vary about the population of Jerusalem. Most people think conservatively that there was probably about 25 to 50,000 full-time residents of the city. That doesn't sound big, That's roughly the size for comparison of the size of Wall and Howe, kind of respectively, somewhere in that 25 to 50,000 range. And when you consider that that was concentrated within one square mile of city walls, that's a pretty dense population that you're talking about. Now, who cares? Why does it matter if if this is the case? And why would it matter that at Passover, that population swelled to four or five times that 25 to 50,000 number? Well, if Jesus is going to make a statement then this is the place to do it, and this is the time to do it where there would be maximum impact in the biggest city of the region at a time, the Passover, when it would have had the most visitors. There would already have been a buzz in town because it was Passover, so it would already been kind of a buzz. Now, here comes this guy who John's Gospel tells us about had just raised Lazarus from the dead, and so the buzz would have been even more. And Jesus intends to come and add to that buzz, to make a statement and a lot of forethought, forethought thought goes into what he did. He, he, on the approach to the city, nearing the, the suburban towns around it, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, he tells his disciples to go and to find a colt that was tied up that no one had ever sat on. Now, the fact that no one had ever sat on it meant that this colt was, was fit for, for, for a sacred task. There are examples of that in the Old Testament. And Jesus had a sacred task in mind, a very public arrival of the Messiah. 
the king of Israel in the line of David into the capital city of David's reign. You absolutely cannot miss the boldness of what Jesus is doing here. Because every part of it was a direct fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet that ministered about 500 years before Jesus to the the exiles as they were returning from exile. And in chapter 9 of Zechariah, he's talking about the coming of Israel's king, talking about the coming of the Messiah and what that will be like. And he says, this is Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey. Now, even if someone were to not believe that Jesus was that Messiah King, you have absolutely no room to doubt whatsoever that he was making that claim. He knows exactly what he's doing. This was a very bold, a very open statement of who he was claiming to be, that he was claiming to be the object of the prophecy of Zechariah. But, and make sure to notice this, it is a very bold statement, but it is made in a very distinctive, in a very humble way, just like Zechariah said the king would come. Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, there are instances where ancient kings rode donkeys. This was not something that was unbefitting a royal, but it is not typically how a king would enter a city where, his, where he intended to challenge those who were in, in, in rule. No, in that case, when a king comes into a city to challenge those who are the existing authorities, he would come on a war horse. He would come in a chariot. But Zechariah says that's not how, not how this king's going to come. He's going to come boldly, but he's going to come humbly. Not to conquer with chariots, but with a message of peace. That's actually what Zechariah in Zechariah 9 continues to say. If you go on from verse 9 to verse 10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he, that is the coming king, shall speak peace to the nations. Now, we'll see in a minute how they respond to this message of, of peace. Not, not very well, but for now, look at how the message comes. It comes boldly, and it comes humbly. And I think there's a lesson for us, for the church, as we look at the world around us in this. And this is our mission, right? To come boldly, without apology, for the claims that we make about the truth. Jesus was making a bold claim, and he wasn't doing it with any kind of apology, right? Come with boldness and accept the consequences that will come. The consequences would come for the claim that Jesus was making. They would come very shortly, and they can come for us as well, but we come boldly. Now, we must also, though, also in the model of Jesus, come as the world would not, not, not as the world would stereotype our coming, declaring war and bearing arms, but coming in humility and coming, moving now from heading number one to heading number two, and this is where the connection is, coming with tears. Verses 41 to 44, we see it, the tears of the king. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near, that's Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it. This account is recorded only in Luke. And it shows us that while Jesus is being greeted with great praise, lots of singing from the Psalms, praising him, it shows that Jesus knows that what he's experiencing at that moment where he's being praised and all of it's being heaped on, he knows it's not going to last. He knows that the majority of the people are there in the crowds because they like the idea of a king but they have not really understood or really accepted the message of peace that this king is bringing. 
I won't read verses 42 to 44 again, but, but that's what Jesus is saying that they've almost all, almost all of them have missed. Peace. Everyone would want peace, right? Go up to anyone and say, hey, do you want peace? Say, sure. I'll take peace. That sounds good, right? But the people did not recognize Jesus and his message as the things that make for peace. That's what Luke says. And their hardness to this message meant that God has judged them with hardness. The days will come that Jesus speaks of in verse 43 when judgment will arrive on the city of Jerusalem. And it's almost certainly what ends up being fulfilled in Rome when Rome attacks and lays siege and destroys the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. Right? They surrounded the city, they, they starved it out, and then they leveled it to the ground. And Jesus doesn't say that, that it's going to be unjust, that it's going to be undeserved, it is, going to be, it is going to be God's judgment for their rejection on the message of peace, and yet He still weeps for them. And I think we can say, actually, that it's even more than just, you know, wiping away a little tear. Right? The word for weeping here can be understood as, as wailing. And we all know the difference, right? I've been to weddings where, you, you know, your eyes kind of moisten and you wipe away the tears. And I've been to funerals where you sob with grief. And you know the difference. And Jesus is doing the latter. These are sobs of grief. He knows the consequences and the costs of our rejection of the peace that God offers. Now, there are some very important lessons for us here in this, right? This is really the meat of the entire passage that we read, right? So I want to go through four lessons of these tears of Jesus that I think are really important, right? First lesson, it is okay for us to grieve and lament the costs of a broken world. The perfect Son of God, as He weeps over Jerusalem, doesn't lose His theological perspective here. It isn't as if He's doubting whether God will win in the end. He doesn't lose his ultimate hope in the Father's plan. He isn't in despair, but in his fully human state and without any sin whatsoever, he's grieving the consequences of sin, and that's okay. And we should know that. A few weeks ago, I attended the, the funeral of, uh, of, a, of a man who had been somewhat of a mentor to me in, in high school. And as I was there and seeing some of the teachers that had taught me when I was there and being with one of my very, very close friends as he recounted stories of this man's life, it reminded me of how quickly life moves and the reality of death in each of our lives. And it was a day of tears. And then I'm driving home up 295 and I have a conversation with one of, with one of you who just the day before had lost a baby granddaughter who was weeks away from being born in what was supposed to be the happiest time of year, right? Right before Christmas, just before the holidays, what's supposed to be a time of joy, and back come the tears. Don't forget, I didn't forget my theology. I didn't lose my ultimate hope. But it's okay to grieve and okay to grieve loudly, when you face the reality of the consequences of sin and death. I'm not holding myself up as a model. I'm only trying to say that this is a common human experience, and that's the first lesson. Don't be afraid to grieve when you see a broken world. Jesus wasn't. Second lesson to understand. Jesus' tears of grief would lead intentionally to his tears of pain. He didn't just cry and move on. Okay, good cry. Time to go on. 
He didn't calm down. He continued resolutely on his mission, a mission that would lead him to cry tears of anguish and tears of pain, tears about his own imminent death. We'll talk about that in weeks to come about Luke's account of Jesus in the garden, but that's what he's doing. That's what Hebrews 5 talks about when it says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Learn this now. The tears of Jesus in the face of his sacrificial death, the anguish that he experienced becomes for us the source of eternal salvation, as Hebrews says, for all who obey him. That's where it comes from. That's where the tears of grief lead. He knows what happens as he comes into Jerusalem. He knows what the coming week will bring. And the tears of Jesus not only commiserate with us, the tears of Jesus ultimately will be what lead us to our salvation. Third lesson, the tears of Jesus that he sheds first in grief and then in anguish will lead us ultimately to a day when there will be no more tears. The Apostle John saw a vision of the new heaven and the new earth on the other side of this age, and it's the ultimate fulfillment of what Jesus is doing as he comes into Jerusalem in this passage. Jesus was arriving in Jerusalem with tears, heading for the temple, the place where God was to dwell with his people, but it all pointed to a final coming, to a final dwelling that John describes. This is what he writes. He says that he saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw, John says, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Right? Jesus saw Jerusalem. John's seeing Jerusalem too, but he's seeing a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will, wipe, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here's the lesson from that. You are here in this world now. God has you here for a reason. Don't spend your days just looking to the future and waiting, right? We have a mission. We have a mission that will involve for us tears, anguish, struggle sometimes, right? But it is not wrong to draw strength for that mission of tears now from the promise of the future when there will be no tears then. Draw your strength from the hope that comes that there will be a day when the tears will be wiped away. Fourth lesson, this posture of tears that Jesus has is how we ought to look at the world around us too. Right? How we are to interact with those who reject the message of Jesus. Not with anger on the one hand or with indifference on the other, but with deep concern and deep compassion and with tears. In other words, when Christians look at those who are the enemies of God, even those who might curse him, our eyes should neither turn away nor flame with anger, but they should well with tears. J.C. Ryle said it perfectly, I think. He writes, we know but little of true Christianity if we do not feel a deep concern for the souls of unconverted people. A lazy indifference about the spiritual state of others may doubtless save us much trouble. To care nothing when our neighbors are going to heaven or hell is no doubt the way of the world, but a man of this spirit is very unlike Christ. 
If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, he's talking about this passage in Luke 19. If Christ felt tenderly about wicked people, the disciples of Christ ought to feel likewise. All right, end of the lessons and end of, of heading to the tears of the king. And we're almost done. But all of that discussion about the tears of the king helps us to understand and to put into perspective the final, incidents in Luke, the final instance in Luke 19, what I call the cleansing of the king. Now, quick contest, uh, context. Luke gives us just two verses on this, right? And greatly abbreviates what some of the other gospel writers elaborate on in a little more detail. And it could be an entire sermon into itself. But the, the point in the flow of Luke's argument in Luke 19, right, the main point is this. When Jesus arrives in town to declare himself king, as he arrives and he considers his mission to restore the peace that we've lost, restore by the means of his own tears, as he's thinking about that, as he arrives to prepare to fulfill his mission, he's making a very clear statement that he intends to take control of his house. To practically say it in in plain English, when Jesus arrives in our house, he gets to arrange the furniture because it's his house. That's the point that Jesus is making in the temple. Luke brings the story of, Luke's, uh, of Jesus' life full circle. Luke's gospel starts in the temple with the priest Zechariah on duty in the temple, right? Hearing news about the birth of his son who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then after Jesus is born, Luke gives us the account of Jesus being presented in the temple in dedication and according with the law of Moses. And as a child, only in Luke do we read that Jesus when he was in Jerusalem with his parents for the, for the Passover, actually, ends up in the temple hanging out with the religious leaders, and he said, this is my father's house. And he had likely been back a couple of more times during his ministry. John tells us about that. But now he's back home. He's in his house, and he finds it a mess. And he gets to cleaning it out. And he has a right to, because it's his. Even if the merchant's in the temple courts had been honest, and they weren't. But even if they had been, he still would have driven them out because they were in the wrong place. The temple courts were meant to be a place of worship, and they had turned it into a meat market. They were crowding out worship, and they had to go. Jesus does the exact same thing when he enters into our lives, and he does it because he loves us. He looks at our rooms, he looks at the things that crowd him out, and he says, they've got to go. And he takes it so seriously, so passionately, that he's willing to go to great lengths, even violent lengths, to do what will ultimately be best for us, to drive out those things in our lives that are keeping us from worshiping him. Right? Some of the other accounts says, Jesus made a whip as he cleared the temple. And some might object, wait, is this the same guy who was just crying like a donkey a minute ago? Now he's beating people with a whip? There's actually no indication he was beating people. Some con- commentators suggest that the whip would have been incredibly necessary to drive all the animals out because they, you couldn't just suggest to the donkey, okay, time to go, cow, sheep, out. Right? But, but at the same time, you have to understand, have full confidence in the hands of the Jesus who is holding this whip, that in his hands, the whip is a symbol of how much he hates the evil and the sin in your life, that he's willing to go to these lengths to get it out, and how much he loves his temple, you, 
that he would purify it. He chases those things away because he loves you. Remember, Alistair Begg says, remember, never forget that the whip is held in the hands of a Savior with tears in his eyes. Now, the only thing that leaves us with is what's going to be your response to the coming of the king. As Jesus was approaching the temple, many people were praising him, remember? But the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, they weren't impressed. And then in verses 47 to 48, we see the chief priests, the scribes, the other leaders, they're joining in too. They're forming an alliance. This is the first time Luke mentions an organized plot against Jesus. And we have to concede, we have to even sympathize to a degree. If Jesus isn't actually who he's claiming to be with this big, bold statement, in their eyes, they're perfectly justified. Because in their eyes, if he's just some guy and he's not actually the Messiah, if he's not actually the owner of the house, of the temple, then he's not cleansing the temple, he's desecrating it. And he's becoming a sideshow for all the people, distracting them for the reason why they're there, the Passover. And if he's not who he claims to be, then he's a fake, he's a fraud, and he's leading people to break God's law. And so the leaders react and they conclude, Jesus has got to go. But others, it says in verse 48, were hanging on his words. Many of them were captivated. They were, con- they were convicted, they were convinced, and they were converted. The more literal translation is that the people hanged on him. And that's what it says, and that's, that's, that's what we have to do with Jesus. Because he comes to us and he says, will you be my disciple or will you be my executioner? Which one's it going to be? Those are the only two choices. We may wish that there was a neutral place, but there isn't. You either seek to hang him in rebellion or you hang on him by faith. Those are your only two options. I don't have much time left, but I have to tell you the rest of the story about Kite Man. Uh, The guy back in 1972 who was supposed to sail in on opening day and deliver the game ball from the upper deck of Veterans Stadium. As it turns out, a player strike delayed opening day one week for the season. And then the original Kite Man was unavailable for the rescheduled game. So the Phillies are desperate. And they hire a guy named Richard Johnson, who was a hardware store owner, who had occasionally done this kind of thing, done some parasailing before. But when the time came on opening day, as this guy is standing at the top of a 140-foot ramp in the outfield of Veterans Stadium, about to catapult himself into the air, he froze. The mayor of Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo, is standing at home plate waiting for the ball to be delivered. The PA announcer is saying several times, and now, Kite Man! Nothing. Kite Man! Nothing. And it's Philly, so 38,000 people, right? They're letting him have it. They're booing like crazy. Now, finally, out of embarrassment and probably against his better judgment, he starts down the ramp. And he's halfway down when a gust of wind catches his kite and sends him toppling into the seats off of the ramp. Now, the railing saves him, thankfully. Miraculously, he's not hurt. But it was a failure because Kite Man was a fraud who couldn't deliver on his promise. The vice president of baseball operations later said, he had the opportunity for a test run the day before. We gave him, it was an empty stadium. He could have done it then, but he told us that he didn't want, if he was going to kill himself, he wanted to do it with more people watching. Here's the serious takeaway. Jesus is not a fraud. His entrance was dramatic, but it was not a ploy. It wasn't a publicity stunt. It was a carefully designed exercise to attract maximum attention. Why? Because Jesus was not going to die in an empty stadium. He was going to die with witnesses. 
This was a story that was going to be documented. It was a story that he wanted told because it's a story that is true and it's a story on which your life and the life of your neighbor depends. Well, who do you say Jesus is? It makes all the difference in the world if he can deliver on his promise. And he has. And that's what's symbolized in what we're about to celebrate here on this table in front of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done, for the reminder of your greatness and your goodness and your mercy, for the seriousness with which you take our sin and your willingness to drive it out from our lives that we might be cleansed. And we pray, Lord, that we would remember the lengths that you have gone to rescue us and to bring us peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.